welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is our Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode, and we're talking about Paramount Global, formerly known as Viacom CBS. Uh, before we get, who's, whose choice was this? Ian? I think this was yours, right? Yeah, this was my choice. What uh, inspired you to pick Viacom or Paramount? Well, at the time, it had been it had been dropping quite a bit. It was right when the name change happened. Um, it's rebounded quite a bit since then, but I was a little interested. We see our, our guy, Alan on Twitter, it's been, uh, keeping us up to date on it. So I thought it, it was time for us to take a little, not so deep dive episode for it. And these episodes, I guess, for anyone who is new to the show, these are 30 to 45 minutes, usually around 45 minutes, uh, breakdowns of the business. We go through what they do, how they earn money, some of the financials. And then we talk about, I guess, the opportunities and sort of the qualitative characteristics of the investment as well. Uh, but we are on with Brett as well. Both you guys are in foreign countries right now. Uh, so that's why I'm kind of hosting, not the typical host for these shows. Uh, but before we get to Paramount Global, I want to talk about our sponsor. It's Common Stock. So Common Stock is a social investing platform that lets you connect your existing brokerage accounts. So, you know, a lot of people are able to, I guess, fudge the numbers with some of their stuff. Uh, when they talk about investing, this kind of allows you to really show what your gains, uh, they, it's, they've told us to call it, let your gains speak for themselves. Um, and I, th- I think this really lets you do that. It also gives you sort of a longer form way to talk about potential investments. So you can add sort of attachments, memos, Brett, you're on common stock more than I am. Do you want to add anything about the platform? Yeah, I wrote a memo about match group. Um, and it's a perfect way to do a longer form, you know, it, it's kind of in between maybe an analyst report and, a tweet about a stock. So you can kind of get that conversation going where it's more casual, but you have room to write out your full thoughts. If you ever heard of something like Value Investors Club, stuff like that, this is for that. But for maybe for the younger type generation, people want to make it more social, you can connect your brokerage account, all that good stuff. Okay. And you can download it on iOS. I believe they're on Android too, since Brett, you use them. Uh, Check them out. We like the team over there. They also hired two of our friends who have been on this show before. Uh, So they're really building quite the great team out there. But yeah, definitely go check it out. I've been kind of looking to get into maybe a place that allows for longer form stuff anyway. So I'm going to try to spend more time on there. Um, Without further ado, I'm going to get into what Paramount Global does. And I have to say it was pretty messy looking at it. Like it was kind of hard to understand the strategic vision for the company, but basically it's now just a hodgepodge of popular media assets that deliver video content across tons of different platforms. So some of the most notable brands include CBS, Paramount, Showtime, 
BET, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, MTV, to name a few. And all those brands have their own intellectual property underneath as well. And then a lot of those brands have different parts of the business. So Paramount's got Paramount Studios, which is sort of the theater business producing movies. And then um, it's also got Paramount Plus. CBS has a few different channels as well. Um, But each of these brands generates revenue in multiple ways. So there's number one is traditional advertising revenue. Think just ads on cable channels. That's basically that is that comprises the majority of the advertising revenue. The second one is affiliate revenue. So these are fees paid out per subscriber by companies like Comcast or Dish. So affiliate and advertising are really just those are tied to their legacy media business. And then the third one is streaming revenue. So each brand we talked about, and this is sort of the future, is what a lot of people are thinking about is the future for Paramount. Um, each brand has their own streaming channel. So where you thought it might have been bundled into one, uh, they they all kind of have their own. So there's Pluto TV, there's CBS has a streaming channel. Showtime has a streaming channel, Paramount Plus, which is one we're going to talk about. Um, and it it varies by model. So some of them are subscription products, some of them are advertising, some of them are subscription and advertising. Um, and th- any advertising revenue from streaming gets lumped in here. It doesn't get lumped into advertising as its own. And then the fourth one is theatrical revenue. So this is movie theater revenue. It's a very small part of the business. It's also much lumpier. And then the last one is licensing and other. And this is like uh, if Netflix aired The Godfather, so uh, Paramount owns Godfather, if they aired it, uh, that's uh, Paramount gets that licensing revenue. And the history, it's, this is kind of, history took me about an hour to research, which it was very extensive and it's very uh also very messy so it started in 1927 and i know that sounds like a long time ago there was a talent agent named arthur judson um, who was struggling to find any work for his clients and and they were primarily the clients were trying to get on nbc's radio stations and so arthur judson decided to build his own network um which he called United Independent Broadcasters. It was later renamed Columbia Broadcasting System, so CBS, after he merged with uh, Columbia Phonograph and Records Company. So that's kind of the basics of CBS. That's kind of how it started. And then it got bought out by a guy named William Paley, uh, who kind of led them into the juggernaut, the media juggernaut that they are today. Uh, And then fast forward to 1952, CBS actually broke out a new segment of its company. It was the broadcast syndication segment, which was basically just designed to license some of their content to other stations. And this later got renamed to Viacom and spun off due to, there was some regulatory rule that said media companies couldn't have syndication companies as well. And so uh, they spun off Viacom. The segment Viacom itself started to buy up its own media assets after that rule was kind of repealed. And Viacom ended up actually buying CBS back in 1999, uh, only to break up again in 2005. So the divestiture, re-merge, divestiture, and now- Talk about those uh, those investment banking fees right there. I mean, if there's any <laughs> investment bankers listening to this, they're just licking their chops at those 1% fees back and forth. Yeah. And, and fast forward one more time to 2019 and Viacom and CBS decided they were going to remerge and rename the company Viacom CBS. 
only to change it to Paramount Global recently, so about two years later. So now it's traded under the ticker P-A-R-A. It's known as Paramount Global, but they have had I wonder if this is the last ride. I wonder if they'll divest again at some point. I know they have been divesting some assets, um, but hopefully this is the final company. Uh, what do you guys think? Um, well, I'd say the most likely scenario might be they get bought out. Um, there's been a lot of rumors of that. So that's probably something we're going to discuss in the second half. Uh, looking at their history and the, the, the way these media companies like to operate, I'd say it's likely that there'll be some sort of maneuvering because it seems like that's what they just like to do. They never want to sit still, but Ian, uh, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, I think you're right that they're going to do some maneuvering. They've continued to make some divestitures in the last couple of years as well. Um, so they're always seeming to kind of add things, take things off, trying to, trying to find the, the right mix of parts to be paramount, I guess what's now paramount paramount global but i i suspect that this is not the final iteration yeah and i'll hit the industry and competition here again i got a hamster wheel trying to run this wi-fi over here so apologies if it uh bugs out a bit but i think it's fine right now um and i gotta say paramount global the name it reminds me of prestige worldwide from step brothers but getting uh to more serious point here the industry is fairly simple to understand. There's only like three notes that I have here that I think people would want to, or would say would be relevant. So on a broad standpoint, the entertainment industry is expected is estimated to be about $2 trillion worldwide and steadily growing each year. Global broadcasting and cable TV is at about $300 billion as of 2019. And I think either stagnating or slowly dropping. And then the global streaming market is estimated to be $82 billion worldwide in 2022. So this year and growing quickly, as most listeners would know. Now, competitors, there are a ton. Everyone knows Netflix. There's Fox and Fox Sports and then Disney and ESPN. ESPN and Fox Sports are their big sports competitors. Amazon is dipping their toe into sports. They're kind of a competitor there as well. They're also a competitor in streaming. Apple is a competitor in streaming. Hulu, Warner, HBO Discovery, which is going to be their own company soon. Um, you count YouTube, you count video games. The list is really endless. I mean, in a broad sense, Paramount Global is competing for people's attention during their leisure time. And that's really, you know, it's a very, it's a hyper competitive industry. All right, Ian, do you want to hit management and ownership? Yep. So the CEO, <clears throat> the CEO of Paramount Global is Robert Backish or Bob Backish. He um, came from the Viacom side in the Viacom CBS remerger back in uh, 2019. And uh, he's been the CEO of Paramount Global since then. Paramount has a segment head model. Um, I don't know exactly what the right way to put it is, but basically they have a CEO or a head of operations for like all their different segments. And so um, for instance, like one of them is a CEO slash president of international networks, studios and streaming. And I find this is kind of a side note, but I always find it interesting with these types of companies. And I'm a Disney shareholder. So I see this on the Disney side that it always feels like these are interesting to watch the leadership teams on because there's a lot of potential candidates for new CEOs. There's kind of some maneuvering that happens. There seems to be a little bit of uh, politics involved about um, like which segment head is next in line and who's the most important and all that type of stuff. And it was something um, that I saw at GE as a GE shareholder, you know, four or five years ago. Um, but anyways, on to some more about the, 
management and leadership. Um, Sherry Redstone is the chair of the board. Her family's been involved in the media world for years, most notably her father, who ran uh, national national amusements prior to her, which is um, kind of this media company, basically, but it's it's basically a holding company. And um, they national amusements owns ten percent of Viacom or Paramount Global, and holds about 80% of the voting power. And so Paramount Global is controlled by this Redstone family. And now it's um, firmly in the hands of Sherry Redstone, because there were some legal battles over the last couple of years about whether she was in control or her father, who was very, who it was uh, in his nineties and his, her father's since passed away. And so it's, it's very clearly in her control now. At one point, CBS shareholders wanted more of a say in the company and didn't want her to have the same, basically all the voting shares um, and she won that battle. So she's kind of been able to capture control of this company and seems to be fairly actively involved. Otherwise, insiders own very little. Um, and then one final note is that Vanguard um, owns about 10% of the company and is its largest shareholder. It sounds like Succession, the show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was based off of this stuff. It's uh yeah, they said I believe it was a combination of Redstone family and the Murdochs. Um, but yeah, so they're one of the uh they're one of those crazy families, it sounds like that succession is is truly based off of. Um I'll hit valuation. Market cap $23 billion as of this writing. Ticker, as Ryan mentioned, is P-A-R-A. They also have some other ones that's P-A-R-A-A. Um, I think they have dual class. That is traded. Um, enterprise value is a lot higher. It's $34 billion. Now, enterprise value is market cap plus debt minus cash to X out any of those liabilities. Um, I just thought I'd put that out there because a lot of people may not know what enterprise value is because, and it's very relevant to Paramount Global because they have $17.6 billion in long term debt and $6.3 billion in cash. So that debt load, while Ian will get into it on the balance sheet, it's very manageable. They spread it out pretty good. It's it's there and it's big. Now, enterprise value to operating cash flow is around 40. Now, this is probably the best metric, I'd say, for measuring their profitability, at least in the short run, because they're investing heavily for their streaming content. It's sort of the Netflix model right now, or as people may have known, you know, Netflix kind of has those accounting things that make their earnings look a little higher than they actually are. And it's a bit confusing to talk about over a podcast, but they, if you have, okay, they amortize their content that they, well, amortize is a word that many people might not know. But basically, once you get to the operating cash flow line in the cash flow statement, that basically X's out their amortization while also their upfront investments in content spend. And it kind of gets the true cash generation without any of the accounting gimmicks. Now, right now, since they're investing a little bit heavier and they're kind of coming off of the COVID stuff and they're in this transitional period, cash flow isn't looking that great, but you're going to want to track that over time because if they generate that operating cash flow, that is what they're going to be able to use to pay down debt and then eventually return cash to shareholders through either buybacks and dividends. And that's how you're going to make your money. Now, one thing I look at is watching out for the inflated enterprise value to income number, especially with one trailing numbers. They had a big real estate sale that will not come through again and was also a non-cash sale at the time. There might be some more details in there you might not want to know. And again, like Netflix, there's a big difference between what they're saying they're earning 
on their income statement and the cash they're actually generating right now. So again, track those over time because the cash is king over the long run. Um, looking at dilution, not really anything to worry about. They had a good amount of RSUs and options um, that were exercised in 2021 because I think, as we all know, well, not everyone knows this, but they were one of the stocks that um, the Archegos blow up was about and or was in and their stock got driven up by what, like 300% in a month. And I think some people took advantage of that. Paramount Global took advantage of that and raised some cash. And I think people exercise their stock, but their granting pace compared to their shares outstanding is not heavy at all. So what that means is that going forward, dilution uh, of your ownership might not be that hard or might not be that heavy and it won't hamper returns. I know that was a mouthful for the valuation, um, but this company is complicated. So Ryan, do you want to go into earnings? Yeah, that was, that was a good explainer. And it's uh, a lot of the stuff ends up showing up in the earnings. Uh, so I'll kind of try to avoid some of the accounting minutiae. But in total for 2021, they generated $28.6 billion in revenue. That was up 13% from a year ago. Advertising accounts for 32% of revenue. Affiliate revenue accounts for 29%. Licensing, which uh, I, I believe, hopefully everyone remembers what each of these segments consists of, uh, was 23%. And streaming is about 15%, um, but it is growing the quickest. So year over year, streaming grew uh, 64%. Um, that, that was at least the top line. And then as Brett alluded to, they reported $6 billion in operating income or adjusted operating income. Uh, I believe that figure was actually pure operating income, but that came from the real estate sale. Um, and so if you're looking at it on a market cap to operating income ratio, it, it's it looks insanely cheap, but that is very misleading because it's not indicative of the true cash that's uh, us as shareholders are getting. So um, actual free cash flow was about $500 million. That The majority of that discrepancy between operating earnings and cash flow is that content spend, especially for streaming. Um, and that they announced that they're going to spend up to $6 billion in content expenses by 2024. So they really are pouring a lot of money into it. Um, and they also reported some of the other, I guess, highlights from the year. They reported 56 million total streaming subscribers globally. Um, and that's across all their entire family of apps. That's more than double what it was last year. So they are seeing a lot of growth, explosive growth in their streaming business. Um, and they upgraded their guidance for 2024. They they call it direct-to-consumer revenue, which is pretty identical to streaming revenue. And that is they estimated that they could generate $6 billion in 2024. Originally, they upped that to $9 billion. So they are seeing a lot of success there. That's pretty much it for earnings. Ian, do you want to talk about the balance sheet? Yep, I'll get into the balance sheet now. As Brett was mentioning earlier, they have $6.3 billion in cash, was, were able to raise a little bit when their stock price got a little inflated. Um, they've got $17.6, $17.7 billion in debt with an average interest rate of 4.93%. One thing to note about this is more than half of the debt is due after 2030. With some debt, I think some of the longest dated debt is due in 2047. And so because of their, you know, as one of these big media companies and some, the types of advertising and affiliate revenue that they get, um, historically, that's been fairly stable. And so they're able to put on quite a bit of debt onto a company like this, and they're able to get really long dated debt. And so um, that's kind of 
they will have to start refinancing some of that debt at different points in time, as long as they kind of maintain the same capital structure. But a lot of that is due um, 10 plus years away. They paid down about $2 billion in debt in 2021. And they do mention that they will refinance debt if and when they can get lower interest rates. So they'll take some short-term hit on um, cash with some, sometimes they have to pay fees to extinguish some debt. Um, but if they can if they can refinance it at a lower interest rate, that's going to be better for the long term. They're happy to do that. They also have access to a $3.5 billion revolving credit facility, and they haven't used any of the cap, um, any of that yet. And so um, that's basically a line of credit that they can use if they decide, you know what, we need some more cash to spend on content or um, pay out dividends or buy back stock or whatever they decide they wanted to invest in the business. Um, there's also a pending $2.1 billion sale of um, book publisher Simon & Schuster, which was owned by Paramount Global, to Penguin Books. It's currently in the midst of like an antitrust lawsuit. And so there's some questions about whether that sale will go through, but that should provide even more cash for the company. And then this was just kind of something funny that I found earlier. I was comparing um, Paramount Global to uh, Netflix and the Disney and some other companies. And it's eerily similar, um, the capital structure of Paramount Global and Netflix. And they're different companies, so it's not identical. And there's some, there are some differences, but they've got... Both companies have about $6 billion in cash. Both companies have about $17.7 billion in debt with similar interest rates. Um, Paramount Global has longer dated debt. But I just I found it interesting that two, two companies with similar business models, but still, still different because of all of uh, Paramount Global's uh, legacy businesses have, like I said, it was, it was stunning to me how similar their cash and debt numbers were. Yeah. And the balance sheet today is in much better shape than it was at the time of the merger. It's really remarkable how much how much they've been able to deleverage over the last uh, year or so. Um, Thank you, Bill Wang. Thank you. Wherever you say his name. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they gotta be saying. Yeah. uh, Let's hit an ad break though. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back in. We have anecdotal evidence next, and I think we all probably have something, but let's start with Ian. What do you have? I haven't used the streaming service. Um, Paramount Plus, but I've you know obviously watched CBS shows or football or that type of stuff. Um, but honestly, I almost got it, and I think this is just the state of streaming today. But I almost got Paramount Plus confused with um, Peacock, and I thought I was like, oh, I'd watch something on there, and then I realized it was actually Peacock that I'd been watching it on, and not Paramount Plus. So um, <laughs> maybe a little bit of a like I said, a little commentary on the state of streaming today. 
Yeah, for me, I I've watched Paramount Plus uh, only because they have like certain soccer rights that I like to watch. Um, but I churn or I unsubscribe after I lose those. Um, some of the other ones, like I've watched Billions on Showtime, but once again, it wasn't something that I kept subscribing to. I subscribed to it just so I could binge it. And then I was kind of done. Uh, I, there really isn't any service in here, any streaming service in here that I would subscribe to recurringly at the moment for like, for like a whole year. It would kind of be spotty based on when I wanted to watch certain content. Brett, what about you? Yeah, I think I can play off of both of you guys there. Um, I agree with Ian that I do not understand why, like the value proposition for Paramount Plus is a bit muddied. I don't know why I would want to subscribe to them. Like, I understand why I'd want to just subscribe to Netflix. I know it's broad based, tons of stuff. I understand why I would want to subscribe to Disney Plus. If I was a family or a fan of the fantasy content, I understand ESPN Plus, I understand HBO Max, but I don't understand Paramount Plus. Now, speaking about the churn stuff, and that's a big problem, they have um, way higher churn than Netflix. I think the, they're, they're combining or they're allowing people to uh, subscribe to both Paramount Plus and Showtime at the same time, or sorry, under the same subscription. I think that is a big, you know, that'll be a big uh, help with churn because each on its own, it, it doesn't make sense why they're separate. But combining the two, I think that it's almost to an HBO level plus sports uh, value proposition. Um, but separately, I just really like it irks me to have to subscribe to like Paramount Plus, um, which I've never have, and I always do an illegal stream. Um, don't don't call don't don't call the police on me, but I really just do not like it when they have the sports rights on Paramount Plus. Um, I know it's they they own the sports rights and they have the right to charge me for it, but I just don't like it. I would rather have I, I enjoy immensely when Amazon has the rights to Thursday night football and when ESPN has all the football stuff because they let you one the streams are a lot cleaner and two. It, it's just such a better experience of signing up or having a shared account with other people or, you know, there's so much like, I don't know, Paramount Plus just has a bad UI. So personally, I really don't like it, but I kind of understand where they're going from with all their content and trying to bundle it. Does that, does that make sense, guys? I think you guys are in the same boat, maybe. I mean, it's not the, it's hard to tell exactly what they're going for because there's overlapping content in some of their offerings, but it's still each each brand has its own direct streaming offering. So it's kind of, that's why I say it's basically like a hodgepodge and sort of like a mixed pot of assets. And it, I just can't, it's not clear where, where they're trying to go with this, but let's get to future growth opportunities. Ian, what do you have? Yeah, I think something that's going to be important for them, and this is kind of piggybacks on that real well, but they need to get their big titles from traditional to streaming. So they'll tell stuff, they'll say stuff right now about how important streaming is and streaming is the future of the business. And we're focused so much on streaming. And then their next paragraph, their next, the next line out of their mouth will be, um, you know, our biggest shows are Young Sheldon, Yellowstone, NCIS, which are all shows that are on their traditional um, channels on uh, cable television. And so, and they don't have the streaming rights to those. So for instance, um, 
Young Sheldon's on HBO, Yellowstone's on Peacock, NCIS is on Netflix. And it's just this kind of weird thing. And part of that's because they just came out with Paramount Global. And so these, these, they were getting the, um, the rights to them for a couple of years. They were giving the right, the streaming rights away because they didn't have their own streaming platform to monetize. But, um, eventually they're going to need to start getting some better content on there. Like, it'd be nice if they were talking about their biggest shows being things that were on the streaming platform. Um, and, and having more success in that realm, if that's the direction that they, they really are trying to push the business. Um, some go ahead, go ahead. Ryan. Yeah. I wonder how much conflict or I guess friction there is in trying to get those rights away from linear uh, channels because I, and I've heard that before is like some of these studios aren't super like it isn't as easy as it sounds as like, Oh, well it, it's technically our owned asset, but obviously they can't get it on their streaming channel. So there seems to be more friction there than I would have thought. Right. And and some of it makes sense because they were trying to, they were trying to make as much money as they could before they had their streaming platform. And so they might as well license it out. But I think just to contrast, Disney did a really good job about, and now Disney has more control over all their content, but Disney had did a better job of kind of setting it up so that they could start pulling things off and, and looking forward and saying, we want these licensing deals to end so that we can transition this stuff to our platform once we launch our platform. Um, and it doesn't seem like Paramount Plus has done that in the same way. Um, I will say that they have been working with the Yellowstone creator on a new series. They seem to be trying to make efforts to get higher quality content on Paramount Plus. And I think that's a move in the right direction. And I just there's there's an uh kind of an imbalance right now and i think the growth opportunity is can we get the things that are most popular on what we think is the best business opportunity which is the streaming platform yeah, uh, I, I would note on the end uh you said paramount global and i think you meant to say paramount plus correct just for any confusion from listeners because i know every all the names are um they can be quite confusing at first yes that's correct all right for me and i think this taylor's or is almost just piggybacking right off what Ian said. It's, it's, it's really not one, I guess, direction, but Paramount plus seems to be what they're kind of betting or putting most of their marbles in. It doesn't seem like, I mean, that that's really, I imagine what a lot of the content spend is going towards Uh, over the last year. They or, or this year they accounted for 33 million subscribers. That's almost triple its figure from a year ago. Although it launched, I want to say a year ago, so maybe that's just early growth. That seems to be where they're kind of betting the heaviest. And now that I'm just kind of thinking about this, is because in my mind it's like I'm frustrated because I don't know how profitable a lot of these streaming businesses are for them. And they're obviously kind of in cash burn mode right now because they're pouring money into the content spending, but it's almost like they have to, because if they don't, they'll be left behind on linear TV. So it's not necessarily, I mean, at least they have the balance sheet to do it, but it almost is like they're in a corner. This is their only option. This is their only way out. And they, they have to move to streaming. It, it just doesn't, I, I don't know. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but Brett, what, what's your future growth opportunity? Yeah, I would note that Paramount Plus was called CBS All Access. Again, it's so confusing. They keep renaming stuff, which is just annoying. Um, but 
it is what it is. So they, I think that 33 million was off of a base started a little while than more of a year ago, but for my future growth opportunity, we haven't talked Pluto TV at all. And that's probably because we had nothing to complain about. And it's maybe, I don't know what your guys' opinion are, but I think it's probably the highlight of this business. It seems to have found its niche. It's free and ad supported. So anyone can really go on and watch stuff. You just got to make an account. And I think it can probably grow globally. Um, the only concern here, and I, I don't have the MAU numbers in front, but they have pretty good MAUs, pretty good growth, and um, pretty good hours watched. I don't. I think YouTube and Roku channel may have a competitive advantage here, though. What gives them any sort of differentiation with Pluto TV, and is that defensible over the long term? Uh, curious what your guys' thoughts are there. Do you mean YouTube or YouTube TV? YouTube itself, like anything YouTube. You know, I mean. YouTube on its own is ad supported free. I think that competes. Pro- it's probably the number one competitor for Pluto TV to me, because like if I'm spending 30 minutes watching something on YouTube, that's something I could be watching on Pluto TV. But isn't, isn't Pluto TV primarily live channels or am I getting that wrong? Uh, I, I think no, it's no, not I, like similar. I thought they had live channels versus. I, I would say don't get, don't get, held up on the mode it's just who's it's all about hours spent you know what i mean like it doesn't matter what type of mode it is and and they say they say they've got 250 plus channels of free tv and thousands of on-demand movies and tv shows okay i i think it's different content obviously it's growing so i i think they're i think they can it doesn't have to be one or the other. I think they can both do well. YouTube's obviously doing well. Pluto TV is doing well. What about uh, Roku though? I think Roku channel. I mean, that's basically the same thing. Does it have a live? Does it have all these live channels? I'm looking through. Pluto I believe TV's so. I content. believe Roku channel is very. I haven't checked on Roku channel, but it is very similar to Pluto TV. I don't know who would win there. Maybe it's another one of those where both both can win. No. Or do you think it's kind of more winner take all? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, um, yeah, I wasn't, I had nothing to say. <laughs> so I think uh, hard to tell. I don't have an opinion. All right. Highlights and lowlights for the business, Ian. Yeah, I think to start off, I think the Paramount global name change was smart. They've talked a little bit about how Viacom CBS felt like two companies still, and it just wasn't good. And like, <laughs> through our researching for this show. And as we've discussed, like there's a lot of pieces of this business that feel kind of um, siloed. And I think they're trying to get away from that both with, and it starts from the top with the name, I think. And so I think that was a good move. I think the Paramount name is probably better for what they're trying to do um, and focus on streaming rather than using uh, the Viacom CBS, which just sounds like an old company, right? (laughs) When you hear Viacom CBS, it just sounds, it sounds kind of old. I don't know, like not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think they're trying to get a little bit newer. Um, I do think to kind of piggyback on the last conversation you guys are having, I think there is a place for ad supported streaming. And I don't think it's um, been saturated yet. We've got all this ad supported TV through um, linear TV and people are used to that. And there's a huge market for ad supported television and ad supported television shows and movies and all sorts of stuff. And I think the Pluto TV um business is is a good one as you were saying brett and i think i think there's some interesting opportunities there i think there's more 
um, open space and the ad supported streaming market than there is in um, more of the subscription model like Netflix and some of these other ones. A couple of lowlights for me is the voting control with 80% of the shares being owned by that family. I think that's um, you're along for the ride with what they want to do, right? And what, um, at this point, what Sherry Redstone wants to do. And I think there's a lot of people who really like what she's doing and think she has a good direction for the business. So this isn't a knock on her, but the businesses have not performed great over the last few years. Um, and shareholders don't have a whole lot of recourse. And so it's just something to be aware of. Um, the capital structure is a little bit interesting to me. Like the, the debt, like I said, is... Uh, understandable. But at the same time, um, they're paying out a dividend um, every year. And so they're paying out, let's, uh, I've got the number here, and $600 million. Cash flow. Right. They're paying out $600 million in a dividend um, for the last couple of years and, and basically planning to pay out um, over 600 million in dividends this year again. And it just feels weird. And part of the thing, like I mentioned at the top, Vanguard is one of their largest shareholders um, with 10%. And I assume that they like the dividend. And I assume there's a number of institutional investors who um, like the dividend. But it feels like if you're really trying to chase after streaming, um, and you're trying to get, say, preserve as much cash to spend on content, paying out a dividend at this point. Um, is not the best decision now. Maybe, like I said, maybe their hands are tied and they're just, they have to pay a dividend because everybody expects it and they're afraid to cut it because it's going to tank the stock price. But um, it just seems like that's not a great decision. Um, and then even like, and part of this was due to COVID, but even Disney has suspended its dividend since 2020. Um, and so that cash, you know, $600 million into this business is quite a bit of cash that could be used to hopefully fund some growth. And it makes me wonder if the management team doesn't think they have great profitable growth ahead of them um, and that they can put $600 million to work. Like it just, it, it kind of, it raises a couple of yellow flags. Yeah. Uh, my highlights were are basically that they're, they were able to share up the balance sheet and I guess maybe I'll talk about the Archegos or Bill Huang, or I'm sorry if I'm saying it wrong, but Bill Huang, Bill Huang incident, which was, essentially a stock, if you look at the stock chart, it reached like, what was it? Like a hundred dollars a share or something like that. Um, basically because it was being, and correct, if I'm getting any of this wrong, Brett, let me, let me know. But basically there was a bunch of leverage um, that was sort of artificially pushing it up and Archegos, the firm that Bill Huang ran, ran uh, essentially got a margin call and all these banks had to liquidate, driving it right back down. In that time frame. Uh, Viacom CBS or now Paramount Global was able to raise cash, I believe around $3 billion at $85 a share. Today it's at 30 something dollars a share. So really opportunistic cash raise there. Um, also, I think the divestiture of Simon & Schuster could potentially free up another $2 billion in cash. So the balance sheet is in great shape. Um, and on top of that, with the push towards streaming, it's not like they're starting from square one. It's not like they have $6 billion in cash and no content. So they do have a library of content that they could potentially pull from, like Ian talked about earlier, um, that could really, I guess, bolster the offering for a lot of their streaming app apps. Um, my lowlights though, I actually don't know what the economics or the profitability is going to look like for Paramount Plus or any of their big streaming apps. I, I have a hard time. If, if I don't know what that's going to look like and the legacy 
part of the business is going to keep running off. I have a hard time buying into this. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Brett, what do you have for highlights and lowlights? Yeah, I like Pluto TV, even though I was trying to play devil's advocate, but uh, I do like it. It seems like they've executed really well. I don't know it that I don't know the business that well, but I mean, the numbers look good. Um, their debt structure looks good. Like Ian was saying, uh, great long dated stuff there. I was worried at first looking at that $17 billion number, but looking at the, at their kind of, um, payback periods of what years it's going to be. It's not that concerning at all. If they can um, execute on their strategy, they have a solid backlog, like Ryan was just saying. Um, and then the move to bundle Paramount plus and Showtime, I think shows they're moving in a direction that's going to work. However, turning to low lights, their overall streaming strategy, I think is poor. Um, I like, don't know why it's all. It's ahead, multiple Ryan. companies. Like it still yeah. feels like multiple companies. I just don't know why like Disney um, is so much cleaner. You know what you're getting. And eventually everything's going to move on to Disney plus slash Hulu. Um, and those might even merge together and ESPN plus. Like what even is this? Netflix is one big bundle. HBO Max is um, basically everything under one. It's like it's like separating HBO Max into two with Paramount Plus. Sometimes I, I just don't understand it. But they're moving in the right direction, so hopefully they can fix that. But again, if they go with this current strategy, I, I just think they're going to lose um, lackluster growth. I think with Paramount Plus compared to the opportunity in front of them. Now, some people might say, you know, it is growing, but I, I just don't think it's. Uh, the growth isn't strong enough and the churn's quite high. I just, funny enough, saw a chart on Twitter the other day, right before we recorded this, uh, showing that Paramount Plus, its churn has been consistently high, consistently higher than Netflix. And you got to do something to fix that. And they're really not. Um, and again, biggest low light, very tough competitive position that they find themselves in. And then Netflix is larger. Amazon is larger. Um, HBO Max Discovery is larger. Who am I missing? Did I say Disney? I mean, yeah, they're way larger. They're spending way more. Their content spend for Paramount Global's content spend is is way less. Um, that's just a big overhang for me. All right, Ryan, or I guess you're leading the show. We move to bull case. Yeah, Ian, what's your bull case? So David Gardner from the Molly Pool has this idea of the snap test, where he says if. If I snapped and um, Paramount Global suddenly disappeared tomorrow, would anybody notice and would anybody care? And I think that's how I'm going to kind of look at the bull case, bear case today. I think on the bull case, I think there are a lot of people that care about many of their shows, especially on linear television. When you talk about Young Sheldon, Yellowstone, NCIS, Paw Patrol, and they've mentioned Paw Patrol being a really good thing. Um, don't don't sleep kids. on Paw Patrol. Don't sleep on that. It's actually super popular. It's like the new it's super Spongebob, popular. Right? Yeah, and probably a little more uplifting than Spongebob. But yeah. um, anyways, I think these are franchises that they can leverage over the years, grow the brand. Um, I think some of their hits, um, for this to be a bull case, I think some of the hits that they have on linear television eventually get onto their streaming platforms and subscriber growth continues. And, that's, and it becomes one of the major um, streaming players that withstands this next couple of years of turmoil. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really, I think maybe I was anchoring too much to like how, what the content meant to me. Cause some of these, some of these shows really do I, uh, resonate with, I mean, they obviously resonate with a huge audience. Um, for me, 
just looking at the bull case, I think a lot of people, pretty much all investors that look at this are going to have a hard time valuing it because it, it's not super clear what's going on. And, and you see that looking at analyst ratings, I think it's like six on the six think it's a sell, six think it's a like buy and the, the price targets are vastly different. And so I, uh, I think that creates some opportunity if the non-streaming segments of their business can keep sort of melting at a slow rate or even stay flat and they're able to hit their guidance for direct consumer revenue for 2024. I, I think this is, I think there's a very good path um, to having this investment work out. I think this is probably a business that trades at an EV enterprise value to free cash flow multiple of probably 10 to maybe 15 times. Um, and so I think if, if all, if they hit all their targets, we're probably looking at a good four or 5 billion in free cash flow, maybe in five years. Brett, what about you? Yeah. My bull case is, you know, legacy content, sports, cable shows, they're stable streaming hits maturity in four to five years, you know, continues on its current growth rate. And then I separated out Pluto TV and I'd say Pluto TV continues to be a double digit revenue grower and kind of, well, I put wins here, but is one of the leaders, I guess, you know, there's plenty of ad supported out there is one of the leaders in the ad supported streaming market. I think this, if this happens, there's, you know, you could see them doing levered free cash flow of 3 billion to 4 billion a year. And I say the levered free cash flow because that takes into account. Um, so normal free cash flow is just typically, you know, cash you earn after your capital expenditures. But with the heavily indebted company like this, I would use levered free cash flow because they're going to have continuous, um, well, interest payments are in the income statement, but they're going to have to pay back the debt. So after the debt they pay back each year, how much cash can they return to shareholders? I think they can get to about three to four billion a year if all those seem, you know, if all those work out. It doesn't seem crazy enticing with an enterprise value of $34 billion, but I think returns would probably be positive. And then also in the short term, I think there's pretty decent buyout potential from Warner Discovery. What about Bear Case, Ian? Yeah, so the flip side of the snap test here, I think that there's a chance that people actually don't care about <laughs> Paramount Global. Um, and not that they don't care about the shows, but I think it's an interesting thing that people probably don't care about the company. And so it, that they want to care where the content was. They would just go follow whatever piece of content that they wanted, which I think is different than some of the other companies. I don't think Paramount Global has any loyalty with the brand. And it's like a new brand in a lot of ways. Um, just to kind of contrast it, Netflix is a necessary expense in today's society. Everyone has a certain level of loyalty to Netflix because it's where you watch streaming. It was the first streamer. People just go there, right? And then like Disney is a beloved brand and everybody loves Disney for all these, or not everybody, but lots of people love Disney for all these different reasons or love Star Wars or love all this other type of stuff. And it's not necessarily even about the particular shows. It's about the brand itself. And I think that's what Paramount Global is currently missing. And I think that's the bear case that there's just, that just not enough people care. And as has been your experience, Ryan, that there's, there's a lot of churn in the next couple of years. Yeah. I, as much as I do think they have some really valuable assets in their library, I think as an investor today, you are betting on them being able, with how much they're spending, you're betting on them being able to make good content in the future, not not just their current library, because they're, they're spending that money and they, they have to get a return on that um, at some point. And so I guess my bear case is that they churn stays high and that they're 
not able to get a huge return on that. Um, and that maybe you're getting sort of just kind of maybe the linear customers move over, but you're not attracting new ones. Like, is that a really good scenario as an investor? I don't know. Brett, what about you? Yeah, mine's simple. The competitors win. Um, they expect to spend, they being Paramount Global, expect to spend $6 billion in D2C content in 2024. That feels really low to me. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's it. I think it's simple. And maybe, if you don't get to scale, they're not going to be profitable. Maybe if they're able to, if they were more direct about, they're, they're not very direct about the streaming business. So if they were very direct about the economics of it, the profitability and the growth purely in streaming and where like their direction on a cash flow basis for that, maybe analysts, analysts would be able to do some of the parts here and value each business independently, but they, yeah, they're just giving us revenue. They're They're just just, giving us revenue, right? That's it. Yeah. You can kind of guess, but it it makes it very hard to predict. And maybe, maybe that's an opportunity for investors Uh, more or less interested Ian. I haven't known what I was going to say all show for, for this. I think, um, I think I'm going to have to say just a little less interested. And part of that was because I had fairly high expectations going in that this was going to be something that I was, um, interested in. I'm a big fan of Disney and I, I like the transition that it's made to streaming while maintaining its other businesses. But, um, I think there's just been a couple of things about Paramount global. I, I try and stay away from companies that are clearly not the top tier, um, just because of all the the risk involved with with execution and being being kind of a bottom tier company or not, not bottom tier but a lower tier company than some other ones, but I don't know. There's good th- there's good things about it. There's bad things about it. And I'm sure you guys feel a similar way, but um, I'm I have to say just a little less interested. But I'm probably going to do some more research on it anyways. Yeah, it's I'm I'm kind of same boat as you. I'm I'm on the fence. I'm glad I studied the business in case we start to see like some improvements in the information they're giving investors or the direction of the streaming business. Like there's more clarity around that. Um, that part I'm, I would be more interested if those two things happen. Um, but for now I have a hard time predicting what's going to happen and whether these streaming apps are going to land and be sort of one of the core three or four apps that people subscribe to. Um, that's my only hesitation here. And really, going through this whole thing, all I was thinking was like, why not own Roku? Like, it seems like everyone is just spending at will for the streaming platforms. Like it, this, this whole show got me bullish on like the, the platform providers. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'm less interested. I'm, 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 well, (laughs) I don't know if this is the right way to say it. I'm more in the less interested spectrum than you guys I don't like the video entertainment industry. I, I have personally I have no read on anything except for the fact that probably Netflix is going to stay relevant within streaming, but I, I, I still don't have any kind of read on what kind of profitability they're going to have. Um, and within streaming, I, I don't know, this is not nearly my favorite company uh, within it, even after looking at them. So yeah, just less interested. I mean, there's a chance like, like you could envision something working out here 
but I think you can envision that with a lot of companies. So like, I don't know, why are you betting on, why are you betting on Paramount Global here with their history of poor capital allocation decisions? I, it just doesn't, it doesn't, uh, doesn't get the juices flowing, I guess, as you might say. If I were an investment banker though, I would love this company. Oh you guys, yeah. need, you guys need a divestiture uh, right here. Oh my God. It's like uh, Michael Scott, from that famous episode, Snip Snap, Snip Snap. <laughs> the, uh, uh, what's the stock for next week, bro? Yeah, it's going to be my turn, but we did forget Ian has some news for us. Ian, you want to talk? Right, right. 20, right. 30 seconds here. Yeah, for sure. So some, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've probably heard me mention the project I'm working on. We're finally ready to release that. So um, it's actually going to be released when this episode is, uh, when this episode goes out. So, we have created, or sorry, I have created with a partner of mine an app called Merlin, M E R L Y N. That's Merlin with a Y to help um, basically help people find the answers to the questions that they need from people that they admire, respect, or trust. And so we allow um, experts, creators, and influencers to hold build by the minute video calls for, for anyone who wants to ask them a question about what they're doing or um, just get to get some answers. And so we're getting it out there. We're kind of testing it out, seeing what people think, and we'd really appreciate your feedback. So if you give it a download, um, and let us know what you think, it's an iOS app for iPhones. Um, that would, we'd really appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at get underscore Merlin. That's Merlin with a Y. And, um, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I'd be happy to, to walk you through some stuff or, you know, if you're any feedback you have for us. So appreciate the time today, guys. And I am, uh, Brett and I are both on there. So if you want to give us a call, just, uh, yeah, let us know. <laughs> yeah. We'll test, we'll test things out. We're, uh, what do you call them? The first users. I don't know. There, there's some slang term for that, but yeah, let's get, let's get on to the end of the show. Um, I don't know. We, I may disappoint you guys here because we're going into the high tech realm. I'm choosing applied materials. It might be kind of a tough homework assignment for everyone because it's such a complicated business, but I believe it's the leading semiconductor equipment company. And um, I think it'll be quite fun to do. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Feel free to give us a review. We're almost to a hundred reviews on Spotify. So if you want to be the hundredth, actually don't try to be the hundredth. We need, uh, we're at 95 right now. So get those in. But uh, yeah, we want to remind our listeners that we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. 